Daniel chapter 2. Uh, we're going to finish up this chapter this morning. Uh, like I said, I apologize. I don't know what's going on with the projectors. I'll have to try and get over here this week and see if we can get something going. Um, but it isn't the end of the world. Uh, this morning, we're going to get into the uh, vision that Nebuchadnezzar had. Um, remember that leading up to this, we have the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, and then we have all the wise men, the, the Chaldeans, the astronomers, the astrologers, all of those, rather, excuse me, the astrologers, those that are come before. Uh, and Nebuchadnezzar says, you have to give me not only the interpretation of the dream, but what was the dream. And uh, we, we talked about those things. And then last week, we took some time and we kind of looked at uh, some tools that we should have in our tool bag to interpret prophecy. Um, and so we're going to look at that. In verses 31 through 35 of Daniel chapter 2, we find Daniel before King Nebuchadnezzar, and he's telling him what the dream is. And we read that last week, and I want to read it again this week just for uh, clarity and to refresh our memories. He says, Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. The image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till there that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay and break them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So that's the dream. That's the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. That's what he saw. That's what was troubling him. So we have this statue, this great image, and each, each section of this statue is made from a different element. And as we get into the interpretation this morning, and that's what we want to look at, is what does it mean? That's what Nebuchadnezzar wants to know. That's what we want to know. So verse 37, Daniel begins, he says, Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And I want to talk about that for just a moment because he clearly states that everything that Nebuchadnezzar has, his establishment as the, uh, as the ruler of Babylon, the, the empire that he's uh, been granted, everything that he has is received from God. And he makes that very clear. And I think that that lays a foundation for our understanding of what we're going to look at the rest of the morning, that foundational understanding that God is, in fact, establishing governments empires, kingdoms, kings, nations, to bring about his plan and purpose. In Jeremiah chapter 28, if you want to turn there with me for just a moment, we have the clear statement of the establishment of Nebuchadnezzar, and I think we looked at this earlier. Daniel chapter 28, verse 14. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have put a yoke of iron upon the neck of all these nations that they may serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they shall serve him. And I have given him the beasts of the field also. 
So God has established Nebuchadnezzar as king. And, and if you remember, when we were in Romans and we hit chapter 13, it says that there is no power except that which is established or ordained of God. We have that foundational truth. We know that God is establishing those things for his purpose, to bring about his will. In Proverbs chapter 8, if you want to turn there with me, Proverbs 8, verse 15. He says, by me, kings reign and princes decree justice. By me, he continues in verse 16, princes rule and nobles, even all the judges of the earth. A clear description or clear uh, statement about their establishment by God. And so that lays a foundation of understanding. That gives us some, some, some context, immediate context in which we look at this. Verse 38, Daniel continues as he's speaking with Nebuchadnezzar, and he says, And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven, has he given into thine hand and has made thee ruler over them all. And he says, Thou art this head of gold. So the head of gold is explicitly identified as Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar in particular. That's what's being represented here. Now, that idea that this head of gold represents a kingdom or a nation or a king gives us some insight in the rest of the interpretation because it's consistent throughout. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 10 for a moment. Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10 gives us the descendants of who? Does anybody know? Does anybody know? What happens in Genesis chapter 6? Does anybody remember that? The flood. We have the flood in Genesis chapter 6. So if we're talking about descendants of anyone, who would they They'd be the descendants of Noah? And what we know specifically is because all people were wiped out, except for the eight people who were on the ark, is that everyone that lives today or in Nebuchadnezzar's time was descended from Noah. Okay, so here we have in Genesis chapter 10, what many call either the hall of kings or the hall of nations, because it's taking it all the way back to Noah, where these people came from. Remember, we talked about last week, one of, the interpretation, one of the things that we want to do as we interpret prophecy is to go back and start at the beginning, see where things originate. So here we are. We're looking at where things originate. Genesis chapter 10, let's read verse 8 through 10. I have to get to Genesis chapter 10. There we go. Okay. So we're, we're reading about the lineage of sons of Ham. And in verse 8, And Cush begat Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one in the earth. And he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore, it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. 
and the beginning of his of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Now, here's an interesting thing. The same word that is translated Babel, and it's exactly the same word, is translated Babylon. It's the same word. It's the same place in the land of Shinar. So here we have, uh, while the Tower of Babel doesn't exist, think of this, right? Tower of Babel, this is our symbol of our rejection of God. So much so that everybody comes to this place and God has to there confuse the languages to distribute the people. And as we look at Babylon throughout Scripture, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, it in many respects has that same connotation. Especially as we get into eschatology, those end times kind of things, and we're looking at Babylon, it's that rejection of God. It's that establishment of man's ideas. Hey, we're going to talk about Babylon here in just a moment, but uh, maybe, maybe not of that because we don't get to that context in Daniel. But just keep in mind that Babel and Babylon, it's the same word. It's exactly the same word. Um, most prophecy in the Old Testament regarding Babylon is in regard to Judah's captivity and the Babylonian cap and, and Babylon's establishment, rather as the instrument of God's correction. Almost exclusively, that's what's being discussed when we're in the Old Testament and we're looking at prophecy about Babylon. That's, that's the, the context. And remember, the number one purpose of Scripture, or excuse me, of prophecy in Scripture is rebuke, is correction. So it wouldn't surprise us that that's the case. The remainder of the Old Testament prophecy regarding Babylon is regarding its destruction and the restoration of Judah. Okay? When, when Babylon falls, Judah is restored. Israel, Israel as a kingdom, is, is, as a nation, is restored. Okay? Everybody gets to come back. And we've, we've lost the two kingdoms set up at that point. That no longer exists. We're back to Israel, a single king state. Okay? So the, the fall of Babylon, and really in the Old Testament, the most important thing to remember about Babylon is that when Babylon falls, we have the restoration of Israel. Okay, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 13. Well, Isaiah 13, 14, and 47, and Jeremiah 50 and 51. Those are all uh, most of the remaining prophecies regarding Babylon in the Old Testament, and they're dealing specifically with its destruction. Now, Isaiah was uh, about 100 years before and it's interesting that here he is in Isaiah. He's not only prophesying about Cyrus in chapter 40, 44 and 45, uh, which is 200 years down the road, uh, but he's prophesying about this kingdom that's going to fall that is yet to even be established. In the time that Isaiah is prophesying about the destruction of Babylon, it hardly exists. Hardly exists. It's not a world power. It's not a big kingdom. It's not an empire. It's nothing. In fact, it's so much so that it has to live under the protection of the Assyrian Empire because it can't defend itself. It's insignificant. But God has a plan and a purpose in all of this, and so he's bringing these things to pass. 
Isaiah chapter 13 is all about the destruction of Babylon and how that's going to come, how that's going to come about. Even though they're the instrument of God for, for correction of Judah, for his people, he's not going to condone sin. It's going to be dealt with. In Scripture, as we move forward into the New Testament, even in, sometimes in the Old Testament, Babylon has varied meanings. And so we have to be careful. When we read through, like I said, the, the Hebrew word Babel is used. It's, that's, what it, that's the word that's translated Babylon. Uh, but in, in the Old Testament, and, and especially in the New Testament, it can be one of three things. It can be the literal city. Okay, so even, even during the time after Christ's ascension, he's, he's gone up into heaven. And, and we're talking about it. It can be the literal city of Babylon. It existed. It wasn't a world power anymore. It wasn't an empire, but it existed. So it could be in reference to that literal city. It could also be a reference to the political power that Babylon was. Because Babylon laid a foundation for all these other kingdoms that we're about to look at. And it lays a foundation for the political structure, if you will, that brings about the Messiah. So it could be a reference to its political power. Or it could be a reference, third, uh, to the, as I said, the, the religious uh, connotations, the, the rejection of God. It's going to be one of those three things. And so as we study through prophecy, it's our job to know which one of those it is. And one of the key things to interpreting prophecy is context, right? Context is going to give us that insight. So here we have Babylon. It's being described in this vision that Nebuchadnezzar had in his dream. He is the head of gold. And we have to understand that as we look at this, that that statement that he is the head of gold means that Nebuchadnezzar, his kingdom, and when it ends and when it begins and all those things, when it ends is a key thing in a prophetic timeline. It starts something. It's, it's a marker. And we know that simply because there's a successive nature. This kingdom, and then this kingdom, and then this kingdom, and then this kingdom. Which is an insightful thing for us as we begin to interpret the rest of what's going on. Now, in our passage this morning, the next couple of kingdoms are not specifically named. It, we don't have a name for them uh, at this point right here. So what it demands of you and I is that we are students of Scripture to discover which kingdoms are being represented. As I said last week, when this was written, there were literally hundreds of kingdoms in the world. But God was only dealing with a few. He was only uh, using a few to bring about the things that he was using them to bring about, to lay the foundation for the coming Messiah, to bring about the political conditions, to bring about the restoration of his people, to all of those things that needed to be in place. So from this time forward, uh, there's only historically, well, in Scripture, from this time forward, from Daniel uh, and then the Babylonian Empire, there's only really uh, three other empires that are discussed with any significance. We're not talking about the Creek Indians and their nation. We're not talking about, uh, you know, the Mongolians or any, we're not talking about any of that because none of that has any bearing 
on this. On this, the, the context is here. And biblically, there's only a few nations that we really need to worry about. Okay, so we have our, our options are limited. If we're going to say this is the kingdom that's being represented here, our options, first of all, are limited because God has limited it in his word. The second thing I said, as I said, that there is a list here, and, and this is successive. It's one thing after the other thing after the other thing. And so a lot of there's only one nation that succeeded the Babylonian Empire. So we have a pretty good idea that's what it is. Okay, so let's 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 look here. Um, verse 39. As Daniel continues with the interpretation, it says, After thee, after you, Nebuchadnezzar, shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee. And another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. Okay, so, so in that one verse, there's two kingdoms mentioned. The, the one that is going to succeed Nebuchadnezzar is going to be inferior to him. Now, I would suggest that it's inferior in regard to the things that are significant to the Lord. It, the, the nation, the empire that succeeded Babylon is the Medo-Persian Empire, or, or Persia. Eventually, it just becomes Persia. We're going to look at some reasons why we're pretty confident that that's who it is from Scripture here in just a moment. But one of the key things that we have to understand about the kingdom of the, the Medes and the Persians is their agnosticism. They were very, very quick to divorce themselves from any religious affiliation until much later in the Persian Empire. So all the things that, that, that God would characterize as something that would be good in a kingdom, in a nation, they've removed from the table very early on. So there, it's inferior. I mean, first off, it's not talking about the land mass or the number of people there. It's already bigger. It has the Medes and the Persians are now part of it. It's already bigger in that sense. It's already more wealthy because it has all the wealth of Babylon plus these other two kingdoms. It's talking about the things that are important to God. And it's a key characteristic that even historical uh, scholars talk about is their agnosticism at, at best and really their atheism. Something that they're going to not acknowledge God at all. So turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 51. How do we know? Why do we think it's the Medo-Persian Empire? Again, there's a successive nature. Uh, and we know from history that that's the correct way, but God's word interprets itself. We don't have to go outside of it to understand it, to interpret it. Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 11 And in this chapter, this is largely devoted to the downfall of Babylon. This is one of those chapters where we have that recorded for us. It says, make bright the arrows, gather the shield. The Lord has raised up the spirit of the kings of the Medes for the, his devices against Babylon to destroy it. Because it is the vengeance of the Lord, the vengeance of his temple. So God says, listen, I'm going to use the Medes to bring about the destruction of Babylon. Turn with me to, uh, excuse me, Daniel chapter 5. Verse 
Much of the prophetic that we find in Daniel, much of the prophecy that we find in Daniel is in regard to nations. It's in regard to nations, and it's in regard to the things, the significant historical events that are either already have happened or are yet to happen in regard to those nations, and ultimately to the establishment of this kingdom. And we're going to close with that this morning. Daniel chapter 5, verse 28 through 31. We're going to talk about this more specifically as we get into it, uh, but just for now, for the sake of our understanding, this we understand from further revelation, progressively revealed, the, under, the idea that the Medes and the Persians is the next, is the next kingdom. So uh, if we jump into verse 28, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then commanded Belshazzar, and they clothed Daniel with scarlet, put a chain about his neck, all these things. And in that night was Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, slain. Verse 31, and Darius the Median took the kingdom, being about threescore and two years old. And if you look into history, it's, it's no coincidence that here are things being prophesied that are yet to come at this point. And when we look at history, what do we find? The Medes and the Persians overtook the Babylonians in the middle of the night. That's when they conquered the kingdom. Here it is. Belshazzar dies in the night and the kingdom falls to the Medes. It isn't just the fulfillment of prophecy. It's the specific and accurate fulfillment of prophecy. In Daniel chapter 8, which is another prophecy in regard to nations and their successiveness, uh, and so we're just going to grab a verse here that lends itself to our purposes this morning, but it's in that context. It says, the ram which thou sawest, having two horns, are the kings of Media and Persia. They're the next kingdom. They're the successive kingdom to Babylon. Now, the first, so here we are. We're determining that from Scripture. We put the name Medo-Persian Empire up on it because that's what history calls it. But God himself said it's the Medes and the Persians. And he symbolizes that by a, a chest uh, and arms of silver. So two kingdoms coming together with to be one, and that ultimately come, becomes the, the Persian Empire, which takes all of Babylon, all of Media, all of Persia, expands itself beyond there just a bit, okay? Um, I'm doing my best to stay out of the, his, the history to some respects because I want to confirm that the Bible is what interprets the Bible. The reason, it's just like creation. The reason we see these truths out there and we observe them in the world around us is because they are true. They don't become true because we saw them. They don't become true uh, for any other reason, but we would expect to find them out there because this is what God's word says. And the same is true here in regard to prophecy. We would expect to find things in history that fit directly and specifically, accurately, into these prophetic utterances. And that's what we're finding here in regard to the, to the Medo-Persian Empire and its success, succession to the Babylonian Empire. And God using it to overthrow all of these things prophesied 
hundreds, hundred years before they existed. Yet here it is accurately, and, and not only that, but in regard to their rise to becoming a, an empire in and of their own, it really defies history, it defies logic and, and, and understanding as far as we can, are concerned, with the exception that God had his hand in it. So the first mention that we find of the Medes is in Isaiah chapter 13. And we looked at that, right? The, although in Isaiah 13, that's a, a prophetic look at the fall of Babylon, and God is going to use the Medes to bring it. That's the first place we read about the Medes. So if Babylon didn't exist, the Medes were hardly a dot on the map. But we have to understand that that period of time where the Medes and the Persians, the Medo-Persian Empire, is, uh, is ruling is a significant chunk of biblical history. So you have three historical books, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, are all written during that period of time. And if you look at the minor prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, uh, are all written during the Persian Empire, during the Medo-Persian Empire. It's a significant amount of Jewish history. It's a short span of time, but it's a significant amount of Jewish history. And so if we look at just Esther, right, here's this picture of this. Uh, here we are. God's going to redeem his people. You know, all of those in Ezra, we have the promise and the, and the rebuilding of the temple. In Nehemiah, we have the rebuilding of the wall as prophesied hundreds of years beforehand. Haggai is an interesting book. If you ever want to go read it, here's Haggai the prophet. And God says, listen, go marry the prostitute and she's going to be unfaithful. But all of that is an illustration of my people. And you, Haggai, are going to deal with them as I tell, deal with her as I tell you to, as an illustration of my faithfulness. The Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, we also read, if the Babylonian Empire, let's see, if the Babylonian Empire is the fall of Judah and them coming into captivity, the Medo-Persian Empire is the restoration of Judah. And I think I said that wrong earlier. Because it doesn't happen until the Medo-Persian Empire. Turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 36. 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Let's read the last two verses, 22 and 23. It's now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God of heaven given me, and he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? The Lord is God. Be with him and let him go up. With the restoration of the temple. Cyrus is going to fund it. He's going to send, and Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, 
confirms that it's the same time period, it's the same thing happened. The restoration. Um, there is further prophecy regarding the Medo-Persian Empire as, as we look forward. Like I said, Daniel is full of prophecies about nations. If you turn with me to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11. And I want to read verse 24. And I realize that we're, we're just grabbing some verses here, but we're going to progress through these and we're going to look at them in more detail as we get to these chapters. But it says, he shall, uh, he shall enter peaceably upon all the fattest places of the province, and he shall do that which his fathers have not done, nor his, uh, excuse me, two through four, not 24, Daniel 11, two through four. And now I will show thee the truth. Behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than they all, and by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Grecia, and a mighty king shall stand up that shall rule with great dominion to do according to his will. And when he shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken and shall be divided toward the four winds of heaven, and not to his posterity, nor according to his dominion, which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up even for others beside those." So here we have a king, one of the Persian kings. This is, and he's going to come against Grecia, Greece. This is Xerxes coming into Greece and trying to conquer it. And he was unsuccessful. He had some victories, but he had tragic losses. And it was at that point, the Persian Empire began to decline heavily and shortly thereafter was conquered, which is just what we read. In the time of this king, that kingdom is going to fall apart. Again, the accurate fulfillment of prophecy. The kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, it, it does two things. It serves as a historical bridge to the next kingdom. It's giving us this successive idea of what's happening, of God's hand throughout all of these kingdoms to bring about his plan and purpose. And really, when we look at it, it's rightly classified as history because all the prophecy regarding, regarding the Medo-Persian Empire is done it's fulfilled when you get to the new testament you're not reading about that kingdom it's it's finished and in fact throughout the old testament once you get past those prophets that were prophesying specifically during that time there's you don't read about it anymore it's done it's it's finished what it does do for you and i as believers is it's confirmation if God has said, this is what's going to happen, here is fulfilled prophecy to its fullest extent. It's not fulfilled and there's maybe something left hanging, but it's fulfilled accurately. It's fulfilled completely. If God would do this, something seemingly insignificant as far as history is concerned, could we trust him with those other things that are yet to come that are significant in history? Absolutely, we can. It should be. The Medo-Persian Empire, as we look at it, should be for you and I hope in the future that is yet to come, in those things that God has said that we are expecting and looking forward to. All right. We have this other, this third kingdom, this kingdom of brass. Okay? Kingdom of brass. Belly, thighs of brass. The kingdom that's represented by the belly and thighs of brass is most likely Grecia. 
And I say most likely it's it's probably Grisha. And we look at these things again, we're deriving this, this successive understanding of kingdoms, Babylonian kingdom to the kingdom that was after it, to the kingdom that was after it. Okay. In Daniel chapter eight. Daniel chapter 8, verse 20 through 22. Okay, we read verse 20 earlier. The ram which thou sawest, having two horns, are the kings of the Me of Media and Persia. And the rough goat is the king of Grecia. And the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Now that being broken, whereas four stood up, for it, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in his power. Does anybody know who the first king of the Grecia uh, of the kingdom of Greece was? Alexander the Great, Macedonian, Alexander the Great. And what happened when Alexander the Great died? His kingdom was distributed to his four generals, wasn't it? which is very accurate with what we read here, the latter time of their kingdom when the trans, uh, excuse me, being broken, this horn broken, that being Alexander the Great, where I stood up four kingdoms. It's interesting that it's very specific. And this is written hundreds and hundreds of years before this was ever going to happen. Macedonia was <laughs> even more insignificant than the Medes and the Persians. It hardly existed, and it was established by a single guy. Again, it makes no sense unless God's hand is in it. There isn't a lot related to Grisha prophetically in Scripture. Um, there just isn't. We read about it here as a nation. Uh, it's kind of like the Medes and the Persians in that sense. It's this historical bridge to get us to the, to the next kingdom. But again, that great specificity. Now, in Genesis chapter 2, if you want to turn there, excuse me, 10, Genesis chapter 10, if you want to turn there with me again, um, the, the word Grecia is, it's the same word that we read of the son of Japheth, Javan or Javan. It's the same word. And as you, you look in Genesis chapter 10, and you read about these things, uh, and you get to, to Javan, uh, it says, and the sons of Javan, Elisha in verse 4, Tarshish, Kittim, and uh, Do, Dodanim, these are the isles of the Gentiles divided in their lands, everyone after his tongue, after their families in the nations. So geographically, it fits. Geographically, it fits. But it's the same word. Javan is translated Grecia. So, so this, this is where they're from. This is where they're descended from. Um, the English translators of the Bible translated it Grecia because they're trying to insert the historical understanding. It's not the best translation. But nonetheless, there it is. Uh, turn with me. So... Like I said, it's, it's largely fulfilled. Again, like the Medes and the Persians, it's done. We read about it further in Daniel. But once the Grecian Empire ends, it's all history. We're not looking forward prophetically to anything else from Greece. 
And I, and I say that specifically because there are those that will, uh, with different eschatological views, and they're going to they're gonna chalk up, there's a lot that happens in their perspective in the Grecian Empire and what happens there. Antiochus Epiphanes was the last ruler, one of the last rulers of Grecia. Uh, and I just use Grecia, it's the kingdom of Greece, or however you want to phrase that. And he, he comes to that position in the realm that governs Jerusalem. And if anybody's familiar with the story of the Maccabees, that's Antiochus Epiphanes. He's the persecutor in that, in that story. He's the one that said, no more worship in the temple. He's the one that started sacrificing pigs in the temple. That was him. The Maccabean revolt was a re direct response to his totalitarian regime. And so there are those that are said that they want to say, hey, Antiochus Epiphanes, and here's the, this, uh, and we read about this in Daniel, this uh, abomination, this desecration of the temple. Okay. And so they, they're, they're in a different timeline, so to speak, than Jesus. And I'm going to tell you why I think that. If you turn with me to Matthew 24, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus begins to talk about uh, eschatological end times kinds of things. Um, and, one of the, and, and in this chapter specifically, we have him putting that idea to rest because he addresses it specifically. Um, Antiochus Epiphanes predates Jesus. Okay, just keep that in mind. He predates Jesus. The Maccabean revolt happened between the Old and the New Testament before Jesus was born. Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 and 16. When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Whoso reads this, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. If Jesus clearly understood this, as the creator, as something yet to happen, we should probably understand it as something yet to happen in Jesus's day, which means it was not Antiochus Epiphanes. I'm just letting scripture interpret scripture. Let Jesus himself interpret that scripture. But there are those who will hold on and say, that was it, that was where it was at. And essentially, for the most part, the rest of prophecy was fulfilled with this next kingdom and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Now, I don't know, and I'll just throw this at you. Uh, those who would say, who, who would agree with us and say, well, Jesus said this is yet to happen. This is a future event, something prophetic yet to occur in Jesus's day. They would say that Antiochus Epiphanes and what he did was a foreshadowing of what was to come, which is all well and good. Uh, perhaps it is. I think it's completely unnecessary that it's a foreshadowing. And I think that if it was a foreshadowing, God would have included it in Scripture as a means of progressive revelation, which he has consistently done from Genesis all the way through the Bible. So I don't think we have to somehow make, remember last week I said that we don't have to take these current events and stuff them into, we don't have to take these historical events and stuff them into fulfilled prophecy. We don't have to do that. 
All we have to know is that there is an abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet that in Jesus' day was yet to come. And I don't have to go find some other thing that will fit that mold. When we begin to do that, that's where we begin to cause trouble and division when it comes to eschatological things. So we have three kingdoms, right? Babylon, represented by the head of gold. We have the Medo-Persian Empire, represented by the arms and the chest of silver. We have the Grecian Empire, represented by uh, the belly and the thighs of brass. We have two more empires, two more. Let's, uh, Daniel 2, let's read verse 40. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaks in pieces and subdues all things, and as iron that breaketh all these, shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. But they shall be in it of the strength of the iron forage, much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. I'll tell you this right from the get-go. There are those who interpret the feet and the legs as two separate kingdoms. It's, it's effectively the same kingdom in their interpretation. I will also tell you that the, the fourth kingdom in verse 40, and the, as it can ter- carries on in verse 41, and whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, in the Hebrew is a clear grammatical reference back to the fourth kingdom reference in verse 40. So the feet of iron and clay and the legs of iron are the same kingdom. It's not, it's not one and, and, and a separate one. It's, it's one kingdom. Just letting scripture say what it says. Does anybody know what the last world empire that is discussed in all of the rest of scripture is? I saw somebody mouthed it in the back. What is it? Rome. It's the last empire, worldly empire referenced in scripture. And it directly succeeded the Grecian Empire. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but it says, In the days of these kings shall the kingdom of God, shall God of heaven set up a kingdom. Now, there may be some differences of opinion in the prophetic timeline when you get to that verse. But Jesus said, well, we're going to get to what Jesus said in a moment. Okay, I believe that this is Rome with with certainty, and I'm gonna I'm gonna get to that as we get to the to the next kingdom, the kingdom that God is going to establish. Uh, and I believe that that reference in verse 44 is the confirmation of it being Rome, and that'll become clear as we get into the next one. Now, I'll tell you this: so there is a lot, a lot of discussion, a lot of discussion about Rome in eschatology, in end times discussion. People make it a big deal. 
when you get into Revelation, for example, what kingdom do you read about of these four? Does anybody know? Babylon. You read about Babylon. You don't read about Rome. You read about Babylon. And if that's the case, why would we make Rome such a big deal? There, where there's, I, I, the answer is I don't know why we'd make it such a big deal. The simplest rendering of Scripture is, in this case, I believe the most correct. And I'll just say that I've grappled and I've meditated and I've been frustrated and I've studied this all week. I don't think that Rome is probably a big player in the end times. And what they'll say is, well, the, the, this is the interpretation that they give. The, the legs of iron is one kingdom, that's Rome. And then the feet of iron and clay is the revived Roman Empire. And there's a prophetic gap in the middle there. And they base that upon some stuff that we look at in, uh, in Daniel chapter, it's not chapter 3, in Daniel chapter not chapter four or five, where we get to the, anyway, some, some other stuff later in Daniel. And they're inferring some things upon that. Um, and they're trying to, but what they're doing is they're linking the figurative language. If God was going to say, and, and that this kingdom, Rome, is significant in future events yet to come, why would we not read about them like we read about Babylon as it is a significant future kingdom? It's representative of things. If he's so specific everywhere else, why would he be unspecific and in fact say almost nothing about it? Just throwing it out there for our consideration. Grammatically, it's the same kingdom in Daniel. And so I'm going to hold that it's the same kingdom. Rome is the fourth kingdom. There it is. And in Rome's day, there's more to talk about Rome as we progress through Daniel. But at some point, Rome is done and it's fallen. We don't read about it anymore. Okay, just throwing that out there for you to consider, for you to think about. Um, The stone, right? So we have these this statue and all of these elements, and they represent these kingdoms. If you want to do a study on the, if you want to read some things about these kingdoms and things, I've got a reference that if you would like it, I'll I'll send it to you. Um, it does a good job taking the history. Here's the history. These are the things that we know about these kingdoms that we've observed that we've read about. It's been recorded throughout history. And then you can, and, and he does a really good job saying, look at the very specific ways in which this kingdom fulfills that. Like I said, it's, it's taking the history and putting it in here, which we got to be very careful of, but we don't have to, we don't have to do that here. We have these, these confirmations. And as we progress through, um, we see those things happening. The only other kingdom left is Rome in scripture. So it's got to be Rome. And then the stone, okay? 
The last thing that Nebuchadnezzar sees in his vision is this stone cut out without hands, and it hits this statue in the feet. And I think it's specific that it hits it in the feet. Uh, and it says in the interpretation of all, and then it, then it grows into a great mountain and it fills the whole earth. Okay. In verse 44, in the days of these kings, this is where he gets to the stone. In the days of these kings, those who are ruling during the Roman Empire, there are multiple kings, um, not all at the same time, right? But these are the Caesars. Shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom? which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all kingdoms, all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much, verse 45, as thou sawest, though a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter, and the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof Sure. All of those things, here's the thing, and this is what we cannot miss. This is what everybody wants to get hung up on all these kingdoms and that kind of thing. And if you go and you study through and you read commentaries and you look at what do they talk about the most, all these other kingdoms, what is the point of all this? The stone. That is the biggest thing. The kingdom that God is going to set up. That is the point of all of this. Literally, all of the others are just historical bridges to God's plan of redemption to the establishment of his kingdom. And all he did here is tell us literally when it's going to happen. When am I going to establish my kingdom? That's the point. That's the big takeaway. Don't miss that, because if we miss that, we've missed everything that God is really intending to tell us. If we didn't know if it was Babylon, the Medo-Persian Empire, Greece, and Rome, it wouldn't matter. It really wouldn't matter that much. What we can't miss, because I could miss all of that. I could be uh, a pygmy in some jungle somewhere and never have heard of Greece or Rome, and it wouldn't change the fact that God has established a kingdom, and that's the one I really want to tell you about. I'm not going to take the time to tell them about Babylon and the Medo-Persian Empire and how that succeeded, and I'm going to tell you about Jesus Christ and the kingdom that God has established. That's the point. That's the big takeaway. That's the thing we cannot miss. And I bring that up because as I studied through it, as I read commentaries and looked at all those things, almost none of them got to this. And I was astonished because this is the most significant thing in history thus far. The establishment of God's kingdom. And it's represented by this stone. Now, he says that he establishes it in the days of these kings. So during the Roman Empire is when God established his kingdom. When was Jesus born? What empire was ruling? Rome. Okay, do we have any complications there? No, it's simple. That's it. God started, he initiated his kingdom in the time of these kings. And the ruling empire at that time was Rome. That's when he started. That's when it began. And it's the point of the entire vision, as I said. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis 49. Now, Genesis 49, Jacob is 
uh, about to die, and he's, he's going to bless his sons. <clears throat> Jesus is the, li- the lion of the tribe of Judah. The lion of the tribe of Judah. He's a descendant. He's, he's, Jesus was from that tribe. Who else was from that tribe? David. It's an interesting thing to consider. Uh, we're going to look at that. Okay, Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. This is Jacob, and he's blessing Judah. And this is part of what he says. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and until, and unto him shall all the gathering of the people be. This, this is it. There's going to be this establishment of a kingdom, the scepter being representative of that, and it's never going to depart from Judah. Here's something we know with a fact, right? This is not talking about a, a physical kingdom. How do I know that? Because during the Babylonian captivity, there isn't a king for part of it. I mean, there are those who are, who are vassals of Babylon, but there's... And the other thing that we know so there's not a king in Israel right now. So this is a spiritual fulfillment. This is something that is yet to happen. Well, it's happened, right? But this is something that we're looking forward to. And we're looking forward to something that is not a physical kingdom. And we know that. We, we know that. Turns me to Matthew chapter 22. Jesus himself would confirm part of the reason that he was here wasn't necessarily just to redeem mankind, but to establish this kingdom. Matthew chapter 22, verses 42 through 46. Oh, no, I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll get to that reference next. So, here, here is Jesus, and this is what he says in verse uh, Matthew 22, 42 to 46, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him, the son of David. Now, pause there for a moment, right? Here's David. He's the king of Israel. What did God promise David? There's always going to be, there, you will always be the king, right? That's what he promised him, effectively. I mean, it's, maybe that's an oversimplification of the promise, but that's what he said. So then as we look at the the promises that God made to David, and that there will always be, the seed of David will always be upon that throne. We have to understand that there is something happening here bigger than, bigger than David's descendants. Now, Jesus himself is a descendant of David. We know that. We've seen his genealogies in the Gospels. We know that he's a descendant of David. So there's a physical fulfillment of this, but there's also a spiritual fulfillment of this. In that David, Jesus Christ is going to sit on that throne. He's going to establish that kingdom, which is being prophesied back in Genesis 49. Until Shiloh come, until, uh, until heaven comes, essentially, is, what, is what, it, what, what the simplification of how we can understand that. Okay. Uh, he continues on, Jesus says in verse 43, He saith unto him, How then does David in spirit call him Lord? 
As God is making this promise to David, and David is here talking, and that's what he's doing, is quoting David. He says, whose son is the Christ? And they answered and said, well, he's the son of David. They, they understand that he's a descendant of David, that that's the lineage through which he's going to come. We know that it was prophesied all the way back there uh, to Judah. And then we have the promises to David. Okay? He's talking to Pharisees. They understand this. They, they're experts in the law. He asked them the answer correctly. And then Jesus says, listen, if that's true, if he's the son of David, how then, why does David in spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said unto my Lord, capital Lord, right? God, who is the self-existing God, as he's revealed himself, that's his name. Jehovah said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. Jesus is essentially saying, why would David call him Lord if David is his father? That makes sense? Now, it's assumed and they understand that it's maybe like, great, 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 great generations removed, grandfather. But why would he call him Lord? And why would God himself say, sit thou at my right hand? Jesus is here trying to confirm to them, and he's holding them to account for their understanding of what has been revealed. And he's saying, you've got something wrong. You've got something wrong. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? There, there's something to play here. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 29 through 36. So here's Peter. This is at Pentecost, and he's giving some explanation. This is, in many respects, this is how, da- how Peter initiates his recitation of the gospel. And he says, men and brethren, let me speak, freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. In other words, Peter says, we could go to David's grave, we could open it up, we could see his bones. He didn't come back to life. He didn't do it. He's removing some options of interpretation from the table in that statement. Then he says, therefore, being a prophet, speaking of David, and knowing that God had sworn him an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. So he's giving us clearly the idea, this is the proper understanding. David knew that the fruit of his loins, that those some descendant of his would be the Christ and would sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spoke of the resurrection of Christ, with his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This is a quotation from one of the Psalms that David wrote. This Jesus has God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. In other words, his flesh did not see corruption. He's making the connection. Here's David prophesying, and this is what he said. And Jesus fulfills that prophecy, and then he continues on. For David is not ascended into the heavens. How do we know he's not ascended into the heavens? Because his bones are over there. We can go look at them. He's removed some options of interpretation from the table. 
But he says to himself, this is what David said, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand. He's confirming that it could not be a literal interpretation of David. Therefore, excuse me, sit on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly. Peter says, I'm going to give you the truth. Know assuredly that God has made the same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord, the Lord that is being referenced by David, who's sitting on the right hand of Jehovah. He's made him both Lord and Christ. Peter is saying that the fulfillment of the prophecy and the understanding of David, that his kingdom would never cease, that there would always be somebody sitting on that throne, that David would himself call Lord, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, in the Messiah. That's all he's saying. That's what he's trying to prove to them. And why are we talking about all of this? Because in Daniel chapter 2, we're talking about this kingdom that's being established by God himself. It's not brought about by man, but as we look at this idea, and we have to acknowledge this progressive revelation, that's what we're seeing happen here. And it comes through first, at least in the beginning, it comes through the promise, the, the, the prophetic prayer of Jacob to Judah. We know that from Judah, we get down to David, who's this king. We have these continued promises to David about his kingdom and what's going to be established there. And then as we get into the, Old, the New Testament, we find not only Jesus commenting on it, but we find Peter clarifying it as he shares the gospel to these people. And these people are very keen to understand this because this is their hope. They're looking forward to this Messiah. They've been waiting for him to come and deliver them from the political bondage that they're in. And when they grasp what's being said here, when they grasp that David wasn't talking about a political deliverer, David was talking about this Jesus Christ who has come, and, he's not, and he, now he's establishing a kingdom that God himself has established his kingdom. This is what Daniel talked about. That's what Jesus is saying, and we know that this is the case here because this is what Peter's talking about. We have Jesus' commentary on it. What happens? 3,000 of them respond in faith to Jesus Christ because they got it, because they understood. This is prophecy fulfilled in our midst. We are witnessing the fulfillment of God's promise to establish a kingdom right here, right now in Jesus Christ. And they responded to it. If that's the case and it's that significant, why would we spend so much time looking at all these other kingdoms? This is the point of Daniel chapter 2. Now, Jesus himself made it clear that he was establishing the kingdom. Turn with me to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. And in Mark chapter 1, this, I mean, it, it's sort of an abbreviated version of Jesus' initiation of his ministry here on earth. And Mark is very succinct in, the, in his gospel. I mean, it, there's... He doesn't, he doesn't give a genealogy, for example. He's very succinct. He's very quick to get to the point. And the way that Mark, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, introduces Jesus Christ and his ministry uh, is 
is the same. It's very succinct. John, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Now, after that John was put in prison, that's John the Baptist, Jesus came unto Galilee, preaching what? The gospel of the kingdom of God. Daniel chapter 2, the kingdom of God. Saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent ye and believe the gospel. What was Jesus saying? The kingdom of God is at hand. It's now. It's in Jesus' time. It was being established then. It's at hand. And it should be no surprise because we just read in Daniel 2 that in these days, in the days of these people, this kingdom, God's going to create his, he's going to establish his kingdom. In Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 9, we have this prophetic utterance. And I think we've read this as we've studied through uh, Daniel already. But this gives some clarification, and I bring this passage up because there are those that are yet looking forward to the establishment of a kingdom. In fact, there are those that are, that there's two things. There are those who believe that they have to themselves bring about the kingdom of God. That Jesus sort of initiated something, and it's their job to bring it about by bringing people to faith. And I really think that's antithetical to what Jesus is saying here. The kingdom that he is establishing, it says that it was cut out without hands. It doesn't say that it was cut out and established by the help of all these people. And I realize that maybe there's a, for them, that changes significantly their understanding. Especially their understanding of end times. But in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, we have this clarification. There's this prophetic utterance, and it's talking about this kingdom that is yet to come. And when is it established? And upon whose shoulders is it established? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. The kingdom, the initiation of that kingdom was in Jesus Christ, in his first incarnation, when he first took on flesh as a baby. That's when it started. That's when the kingdom of God is at hand. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. You remember that in that vision in Daniel, the, the kingdom grows and expands. The increase of his kingdom shall know no end. Now, we look at that, and I mean, there is some future fulfillment in that, right? I mean, we, we look at Scripture, and if we take the Scripture as whole and use it to interpret itself, it says in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, right, that the last enemy to be conquered is death. That's, that's yet to come. That's yet to happen. But in, in what David said, listen, the Lord said unto my Lord, set at my right hand until all thine enemies be made thy footstool, until they're put under your jurisdiction, and that's yet to happen. There is future fulfillment in that kingdom. There's, there's things happening there. It is increasing. But the point that I want to make is that it was established when Jesus was born. Upon the throne of David and upon 
his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. And how is it performed? The zeal of the Lord shall perform this. It's something that God is doing. It's something that he is establishing. Just like we read in Daniel 2. So I say it's the Roman Empire because that's when the kingdom started. And Daniel 2 says that in the days of these kings, in the days of that last kingdom, is when it will start. And as we look at it, right, we have this, this immediate initiation of the kingdom of God. We have its continued growth. But the zeal of the Lord performs it. It isn't anything that we're bringing about, which is a very careful distinction to make because Because there are those that teach that teach, like I said, that we have to bring it to pass. We have to increase it. We have to, and we are to be ambassadors. We are to be those who are sharing the gospel. That is commanded to us by Christ Himself. But it's not to initiate his kingdom or bring it to pass. A couple of things, a couple of ramifications of the establishment of this kingdom. If I can just if I can just throw these out there for our consideration and uh, for our encouragement as we close. Number one, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right, the Proto-Evangelion, where the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent, it promises the destruction of Satan. Promises the destruction of Satan. In Isaiah chapter 14, and I want to look at these, if you'll turn there with me, Isaiah 14. The Proto-Evangelion, it promises the destruction of Satan, but it's, it's bigger than that. So don't limit it to that. We've talked about it in its other senses, right? That this is, it's something looking to the redemption of mankind. It's a conquering of sin and death. But it it's personified, if I, can, if I can use that term in that regard, it's personified in Satan himself. The serpent is representative of Satan. In Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, as we go through here and we're reading through the context, is it's talking about the destruction of Babylon and, in some sense, the restoration of Judah. But in the midst of all this, we have this destruction happening, and then it gets into verse 12. It says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How else are cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? And just keep that in mind for a moment. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10. Let's look at verse 13. says, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. Now, there's, there's, a, there's some things to unpack there, but um, you have this, this messenger, this angel on his way to talk to Daniel, and he gets withheld, he gets held up by the king of Persia. which is significant because it's kind of hard to tie up an angel, right? So 
we understand that this, and, and many scholars would agree, not all scholars, but many scholars would agree that this is, again, a reference to Satan. Okay, so here we have Lucifer. We have, we have him represented here in this, the prince of the kingdom of Persia. And the idea is this, is that behind these kingdoms in Isaiah chapter uh, 14, he was weakening the nations. Satan is operating behind the scenes in these nations. And I don't want to, uh, you know, create a, 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 a Satan hunt in every nation that exists in the world today. But there he is, he's somehow weakening them. He's bringing them low. He's using them to try to bring to pass his plan and purpose. That's what Satan does. That's what he tried to do. He said, I want to be like God. I want to be the most high. And if God is sovereign over the nations, if, they are bringing, if he is using them providentially to bring about his will, Satan would mimic that. Okay, so Satan is destroyed. The promise of destruction in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We have the idea that Satan is behind the scenes moving in these nations. But don't worry, God is sovereign, right? You remember in Job, in chapter 1, verses 6 through 10, in the book of Job. And God says, listen, Satan, Lucifer, have you seen my servant Job? And he gives Satan permission to afflict Job. And we scratch our heads, and there's a lot to unpack, and why would he ever allow that, and on and on. None of that matters. For our purposes this morning, Satan could only do what God allowed him to do. He was stuck. He was still subject. He is still subject to the Creator. So even if Satan is the guy behind the scenes pulling this string over here, pulling that string over there, he's only pulling the strings that he's allowed to pull to bring about the plans and purpose of our Creator. Turns me to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2 as we close this morning. The idea is this, the, the thing to leave us with is that God has established his kingdom. The victory is already won. It's, it's, Jesus said from the cross, it is finished. It's won. There are yet things to come. There are yet things that we see in prophecy that, that might worry us and concern us. No matter how it shakes out, no matter what our interpretation of Scripture may be, the victory is won. And we have this confirmation over and over again, even in the accurately and very distinctly fulfilled prophecy in Scripture, that God is going to do as He said He's going to do. He will watch over us, that we are not going to be lost, that we are His children, that we can, in time of trouble, come to the throne of mercy, wherein we can, throne of grace, wherein we can find mercy and help in time of trouble. We have those assurances. In Psalm chapter 2, it begins, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. In other words, against God and against his Messiah. Saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Right? We, we are going to govern. We are going to be in charge. We are not subject to our creator. 
he that sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Derision. The chickens with their heads cut off are running around in derision. It's chaos. It's disorganization. Nothing is getting done. It's unsuccessful. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost part of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O you kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Why are they put on notice? Because there is a sovereign king of kings and lord of the lords that God has established. And he is their judge. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are they that put their trust in him. You notice, uh, and the reason I conclude here this morning is the tense. Ask of me and I shall give thee the heavens for thine inheritance. Thou shalt break them as with a rod of iron. The victory is won. It is finished. It is complete. It is done. When Jesus came to this earth, took on flesh for the purpose of dying on our behalf, and then went to the cross willingly, humbling himself so that he might be the propitiation for our sins. He fulfilled Genesis 3.15. He crushed the head of Satan. He overcame the nations in that sense. Whatever Satan was, was for is overcome. The victory is won. It is there. And we, we have that hope. When we talk about the hope of the believers in regards to prophecy and what's yet to come and those things, we have the hope that we win. Not that we win, that he has won. Prophecy should be an encouraging thing to believers. But just as we read about these kings, it should be a terrifying thing to unbelievers. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your word this morning. God, I praise you. I praise you that your son has come, that your kingdom has been established. And while we may not see it physically, Lord, while we may not uh, interact with it uh, in that sense, God, we are part of it. As disciples, as followers of Jesus Christ, as saints, uh, Lord, we are part of your kingdom and we rejoice at that fact. We praise you for the victory that was won in Jesus Christ and the assurance of hope that we have because you have declared it. And while there may be yet things to come, and Lord, things that may be hard, things that may be difficult, God, we have the assurance that even if, that no matter how that kind of shakes out, no matter where we stand eschatologically, you are with us that you'll never leave us nor forsake us. And we praise you, Lord, for that. We thank you, Lord, uh, for your word and the clarity that it brings to us. And I pray that as we continue our, our study through Daniel, and we look at the, 
the, the prophetic utterances regarding nations and all of those things, that, Lord, we wouldn't miss the significance of the kingdom that you have established and the significance of all of history leading up to that point and the conclusion of history confirming that where every foe is put under the foot of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord. And as we praise you, as we sing adoration, and uh, Lord, praise to who you are and what you've done, and God, even the things that we are looking forward to you doing, we offer it as the fruit of our lips, Lord, the offering of our lips. In Jesus' name, amen.